Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Rick Natris. Over an 11-year National Hockey League career, Rick played over 500 games for five teams, including your Toronto Maple Leafs. Career highlights include winning a Stanley Cup with the Calgary Flames, an American Hockey League Calder Cup with the Sherbrooke Canadians, and a silver medal representing Team Canada at the World Hockey Championships. Rick followed up his stellar playing career with an equally stellar coaching and broadcasting career. And as the cherry on top of everything, in 2017, Rick was inducted into his hometown Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. Welcome, Rick, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm uh, still around that Hamilton area. I'm a Hamilton born, born and raised, my wife and I, Jackie. So uh, we've been back in this area. We're in Stony Creek, actually, right now. Of course, we're old now, and we downsized about a decade ago. So, uh, you know, condo living or townhouse living in the the creek, which we love the Niagara area, so we decided to stay there. Um, we have family still here, and so it's important for us to be in this area. Well, that's fantastic. And mm-hmm. may I ask about your post-COVID retirement lifestyle, Rick? You and Jackie, yeah, what are you up to these days? Well, you know, it's it's been it's things changed, right? And you know, I'm getting a little older. I was just explaining to my wife the other day that we're sort of on the other side again of retiring from hockey. Like I've been involved in a lot of corporate charity hockey games, that fundraising tools. You want a team building, whatever you want to call it, fun tournaments, whatever. And, uh, you know, we're seeing young, more and more guys retire and they're getting younger and more, you know, faces that you recognize. Uh, and I said to my wife, I'm going to, this is the second retirement from hockey is the one that you don't stop playing. So it's, mm. it's you know, it gets a little weird when you've done something for the better part of almost your whole life, like 50, 55 out of 60 years. So, you know, it's funny, the transition, COVID gave you a lot of time to think and what do you want to do with your lives and, and that my wife and I have been fortunate. We work, you know, we're semi-retired or whatever you want to call it uh still have to work a low scoring defenseman from the 80s doesn't mean i can retire early if you know what i'm saying and so, there wasn't a lot of money being thrown at me you know what i mean it was like follow the money road it was like finding pennies behind you know under the rocks so anyways we uh you know that kind of stuff right now so still doing a lot of charitable stuff indigenous work it's been a big part of my life uh going out to communities you know helping the kids i grew up a single mother uh she was uh you know great sports lady in the 60s and 70s which was very difficult i mean it was hard to find i guess you could say so my mom was very fortunate but she believed in charitable work and giving back because you know, at the time I didn't know it, but we, there was a, the village, you know, it was the village in my life that to help take care of me and help uh, me get to the National Hockey League. So I try to do that with other kids myself. Well, let's jump right into that, Rick, because that's a great way to start going all the way back. Get the Rick Natchez story. So why don't you tell us where you were born and, and describe yeah. your upbringing and your great mother? Yeah, well, I was born in Hamilton in 1962. Jesus, you know, I'm that old guy that walks through the dressing room now, right? When I was a young 19, 20-year-old, I'm like in the Habs dressing room. I'm like, who's that old bastard? Well, I'm that old bastard. So, you know, I was born and raised in Hamilton, played all my minor hockey in Hamilton. And I like uh, going back to this uh, real quick. Grew up pretty much a single mother. Uh, My mom was the biggest part of my life. I had a stepfather that was in my life for a little bit, but, uh, you know, we didn't have much of a relationship. And my mom was, a, as I said, a huge Toronto Maple Leaf fan. Okay. She was born in Toronto in the early, in the twenties, mid twenties, listen to the games on the radio, die hard. I mean, I never argued with her about, you know, what was going on with the Leafs because Wednesdays and Saturdays, my mom <laughs> knew what was going on. So 
you know, I go back to that having a having a, a woman and uh, that was very sports oriented. Uh, certainly loved sports. Didn't get to play sports. She had a tough. She was an older sister for five brothers and had to help them when her parents died and stuff. So she didn't really have that kind of lifestyle where she could do what she wanted. So she wanted to make sure, at least in my, for me, because I have brothers and sisters, but I was the baby that, you know, I got an opportunity. And that's, uh, my mom was huge on opportunities. It was your 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 job to do the work. But anyway, she was a sports oriented girl that loved the Leafs, like loved them. And then, because I'll tell a story later on about that. And then my, uh, she was a Ticat fan. 40-something years, she, you know, season ticket holder. So my mom was huge sports, huge sports, huge tie cap fan, dressed up in all the colors. So, you know, growing up in Hamilton with a lady that loves sports gave me an opportunity to play. Um, I tell this story to a lot of kids. Uh, I didn't play, you know, AAA till Major Bantam, I believe it was. Um, and then people say, well, you didn't have money. No, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I ate food and didn't want for anything, but... Uh, I didn't know we were poor, to be honest with you, but uh, apparently we were. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, like I said before, it was just about opportunity. And, you know, I played house league uh, Saturday morning, Sundays, you know, that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, it was a step behind. You know, good kid, but, you know, good kid, but, you know, try it out, get cut, try it out, get cut. It's one of those stories that you hear a lot of National Hockey League players talk about. You know, not the star players, but a lot of the guys that have come up, you know, maybe through the back door or the side door, not, you know, the front door wasn't wide open for them to walk through. So I uh, pretty much played minor hockey through Hamilton my whole uh, career, everything. Uh, went on to play junior hockey in Brantford, which was technically the old Hamilton Fin Cups. Uh, Brantford, I think they were five or six years in Brantford. I was fortunate enough to play there three years and be captain my last year in 81-82. You know, and I tell kids again. Uh, maybe I'm jumping forward here, Andrew, but I was drafted 168th or 178th or something, the junior, the seventh round. You know, went to a team that wasn't very good the year before, so they were bringing on a lot of rookies, got an opportunity to play. And one year from that point of being drafted 170-something or 170th, I got drafted 27th overall of the Montreal Canadiens. So you, within the three-year span from or four years from making my first AAA team, and then going to my first Montreal Canadiens training camp was a big jump. So, uh, wow. you know, that my mom was a driving force in that. I think the Hamilton environment in regards to the lunch bucket, work boots, you know, go to work type of atmosphere or attitude certainly was part of that as well. Well, it's an incredible story, Rick. As you mentioned, you didn't get a lot of most valuable player medals you got. What kind of medals did you get? Most more? improved, and that's participation <laughs> medals now, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> the other way because doesn't that sound better than you most improved in the you know participation <laughs> i mean like come on well but I wouldn't, you know so I, you know, that was funny you know i look at that now and it was always nice as a kid to get a trophy right and I appreciate them working hard and competing and you know but at, at the end of the day i look at that now and it was just a nice way for the coaches to say i belong you know i was part of the team i think because well you know, like i said you had to work to get in there right so I feel so much of a kinship with you, Rick. I, too, was a low-scoring defenseman from the 80s. I, too, got the most improved medals, but I topped out at Pleasant View House League Select. That was as far as I got. But it's great to hear that you made it. And as you just mentioned, 1980 NHL draft, second round, 27th overall by the Montreal Canadiens. You were drafted from the Brantford Alexanders. Yes, what was draft day like? What was the well, buzz leading up to the draft? Did you well, have any was, expectations? Well, no, because, again, it was, you know, the attitude was always, yeah, you know, 
we'll see what you can do. And, you know, you'll be the seventh or eighth guy. And then I end up in, you know, the top four or whatever. You know what I mean? Near the end there. So, uh, you know, I, I play my junior season. And, and I say this strongly, Dave Draper, thank you very much. Uh, Dave was a huge part of a lot of guys getting to the National Hockey League. Helped build Quebec or Colorado and helped build Washington. You know, was part of that Ovechkin, which... Everybody say you don't have to be a genius to draft Ovechkin yeah. first overall, which is correct. <laughs> but Mr. Draper, uh, Dave, was a guy that, you know, when I was uh, a teenager and he was our GM, he was in his 30s. You know, at the time, he looked so much older. You know, I say to him now, he's probably in his 70s now because I turned 60 and, uh, you know, mid to, mid to late 70s. And I'm like, you didn't change, but I don't know if that's an insult or, an, you know, a compliment, but... Anyway, so, you know, I think going to Brantford, having the opportunity to play through mistakes, uh, like a lot of mistakes as a young defenseman. I mean, you got to remember there's some, you know, hugely talented players back then, too, as there is today in the junior levels. And, and so getting to play for the, my mistakes. And then all of a sudden someone came up to my mom and I and said, maybe you should get an agent, Rick. And I'm like, an agent? Well, you could get drafted in the fourth or fifth round or whatever. And late late rounds i can't even remember how many rounds were at that time but uh okay so i i i had was fortunate enough to go to a hockey school called bobby or mike walton so it was mm. up in aurelia and i went through the boys and girls club my mom you know there was a sponsorship thing i got added to it and it was great it was one of the best times i ever uh, had in my life and people asked me you know like what'd you do up there and i said the boiler went down in the rink and i learned how to water ski slalom that's where i learned <laughs> at hockey school so you know there's so many things but in saying that bobby i got to meet bobby and you know he was a great guy he was in his you know early heyday of his career of course and probably into his 30th knee surgery by then uh, as well but uh billy waters was uh the the guy that ran the camps, right? And then R Ricky Kern and Randy Kern were the head guys that ran around and helped with the kids. So my mom had, you know, we saw Billy. He was working with Alan Eagleson at the time. And, uh, you know, my, we didn't know anybody else. And it wasn't like the people were lining up, knocking on my door. So, uh, and I'm not saying anything, you know, negative about anything, right? It was the whole development thing. You know, maybe I was oblivious too. So I didn't worry about that stuff because I was always tuned into maybe not don't get your expectations up because you know things aren't going to work out for you but anyways you know one of those you're a step behind but you know one of those good guy but you know great personality i was one of those guys with a great personality you know what I mean? it wasn't good looking but i was a good personality so so anyways we get the agent billy was nice enough to take me on with alan and then it was weird because then he left alan eagleson at that time so that would have been 1980 roughly in the spring so they had been together uh for years billy had been his right-hand guy i believe and you know they billy went on to become bernada sports with ricky kern was one of his guys so anyways went to billy and he says yo we'll fly you down there it'll be a good experience for you so i have my brother david he's my oldest brother he's quite a bit older than i am almost almost 19 years so it's like a father figure and uh he was in montreal and of course you know i didn't know montreal at all i'm 18 years old so we had a couple pops because it was legal and then uh and then the next day was the draft so you know i'm thinking i'm gonna go maybe if i'm lucky late third fourth round fifth round somewhere so i got like a lot of time to kill <laughs> Cause we're at the rink early. Right. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm hanging out, hanging out and like, I'm freaking starving and you don't want to be eating popcorn and stuff in the stands when you're waiting to get drafted. So I figure I got time, you know, second round starting and that 
I'll run upstairs. I hear nothing. It's at the Montreal Forum, the draft, right? So there's you hear about these hot dogs that they got, Shane Scholes, right? So you hear about these, and I'm like, I got to get me a couple of these because I don't know if I'll ever be back here. <clears throat> so I find that where they have it, they only had a couple of the, the booths open because, you know, it was draft day, right? So and, and the building was pretty full, to be honest with you. So no one really knew who I was, I guess, right? A young kid walking around with a suit. So, you know, I could have been anybody, but... I got a couple of them, and the first one I didn't even taste because it was so good. I just slammed her down, and then I'm <laughs> hiding around the corner, and all of a sudden I got the second one, and I'm, you know, trying to take my time a little bit because I'm thinking, shit, I should have like ordered a water or something with these things. I don't want to choke. So I got the second one like halfway down my throat. All of a sudden, I hear on the announcement to Montreal Canadiens with the set 27th pick, take Eric Natras, and I'm like. <laughs> Eric Natras. <laughs> yeah, that's me because no one calls me Eric, right? Not even my mother. The government and, you know, and uh, the Montreal Canadiens, uh, apparently. Yeah. They're the second people. So I'm like, got this half a hot dog in my mouth and I'm like, throw it in the, you know, run. My brother, I can hear him yelling. He's running up the stairs, right? So I can hear him yelling coming up to the concourse and I I meet him at the top and come on, get down there. So I got to, you know, get my the jersey on and shake everybody's hand and that. And I was in shock and I was sitting there and I'm thinking, because they never, you know, no whispers of, you know, anything. Not that I heard anything anyways, but, uh, you know, you didn't think I sat with uh, Scotty Bowman the night before. He just took over Buffalo as the GM. A lot of people forget that. He left Montreal, became the GM in Buffalo in 1980. So I sat in his room for like, 15 minutes he just stared at me didn't didn't even ask me a question all i did was sweat sitting on the end of the bed so i'm like okay where'd montreal come from right because so anyways i get drafted by the haps and of course um you know first my mind races like savard lapointe langway englom you know larry robinson chartra just won four stanley cups where am i where's their minor league system you know yeah. like, where's the minors right so Halifax, I, you know, I understand the Voyagers. I kind of knew where that, but, you know, never been down east. So I figured, you know, I was getting my mindset in the sense that, boy, you know, what's the opportunity? How long is it going to take to to make the team and whatnot? So it was a big shock. So I come home and I live in Hamilton where there's a lot of French, right? And a lot of people don't realize that. There was back in those days, there was one of the only public schools, French public schools, completely French, and high schools in my area within the five blocks. So a lot of people were busted, uh, kids were busted in, or a lot of kids, you know, parents bought homes in that area so they could go to the French schools. It wasn't a French immersion. It was straight, you know, straight up French, right? You're a Catholic French. Anyway, so a lot of Habs fans, as you can imagine, right? If you're that if you're that heavy on the French, right? So mm -hmm. anyway, so I came home and we, you know, the rivalry was great all the time because I was the Leafs, right? And I was always the Leafs growing up. And then all of a sudden I'm a Hab now at 18. So I get out of the cab. My mom's there. They're having a little thing and everybody's excited. And my mom sort of sees me, right? And she starts crying and everybody says, oh, she's so happy. She's so proud of you. And I said, no, she's pissed off. I went to the Habs because <laughs> she was a Leaf fan, true and true. And no, no, she no. And like to this day, I know she was she was happy, but pissed off. So, <laughs> well, that's like the story any getting drafted, which was weird. Like I said, it was all a surprise, right? So, well, it's so great, Rick. You get drafted by this absolutely you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Best, best thing, thing that ever happened, happened to you. Because yeah. as you note, you were behind on the death chart. You had Larry Robinson, as you mentioned, oh. Serge Savard, Gila Point ahead of you. Your mom, as a good Leafs fan, does not like this team. But Montreal turned out to be a very positive place for you to start your yeah. career. Talk about how 
you know, the vets kind of helped well, you Well, it was, you know, unbelievable. So I got to talk about my first training camp, right? So I, we get, you know, we're all excited. First we fly in, I got to talk about, you know, taxes, you know, as dumb as we are as the kids, right? So they fly my mom and I into Montreal to sign my contract. And uh, the limo guy picks us up. And we're not talking stretch limo, but, you know, the, the airport limos and stuff. And we're from Hamilton, inner city, you know, East Enders. So this is like, we're the balls now, right? You know, yeah. so... We get in there, and I signed for an X amount of money, and, uh, you know, I get the check, sign the contracts, beautiful, nice and thick. It's like you can unwind it. It's like an accordion. Like, it's like, well, 30 pages <laughs> means that I own your ass. Like, back then, that's what that meant. That that meant. So you get so confused. You just sign it, and they say, okay, now you've just adopted me. They just adopted you, right? And then they, yeah. they teach you the way they want. So I didn't realize at the time I was signing my life away because uh, they owned me at that time from 18 to 33 for 15 years. If they didn't want to play wow. me, trade me, or whatever, I was their property. So Montreal, literally, they could bury you. And I'm not saying just Montreal. Any team in the National Hockey League at that time, and if you were under contract to them, they controlled your life. And a lot of people don't realize that, a lot of players today. So anyway, so I get to Montreal, and they're handing me this check, and I'm like, I've already got – that and more spent because you know i was thinking about budgets and all that back then right? i was thinking yeah. about trans am right so, <laughs> at the end of the day i get the check and it's half it's half and i'm looking at it i look up at my mom i look at the check i look at mr grunman which is the gm president i look at my mom and she says what's the matter and mr grunman looks at me welcome to the world the tax rick and it was yeah. like 50 percent but they hammered it right there and i was like I almost started crying, and I still had a nice, more money than ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I'm talking, yeah. everybody's got to understand. Back then, I signed for eight seventy-five thousand dollars, so wow. you know, which is a huge amount of money, not like today, but yeah, huge amount of money for people that didn't, you know, that needed uh, <laughs> needed more money. Anyway, so that was one of the funniest things. So, get a training plan. And it's my first experience with, you know, training as a pro because we did certain things on our own and had some guidelines made in June. It's not like today was. You pretty much were on your own. A lot of running, a lot of bench press, a lot of push-ups, a lot of boxing, a lot of stuff like that, right? Max, max, max. Everything's to the max. So they give me a workout book that's probably an inch and a half thick. And if I did everything in the book, I'd need three more hours in a day because it was like <laughs> that thick, you know what I mean? Yeah. And run 900 sprints and do this. So Montreal was like that. And it was a real eye opener. So I go to my first, and they had testing. They came in and tested me a couple times a summer to make sure that I was progressing, right? Because I never had any, you know, body fat, all that kind of stuff. So, and I was a big kid, right? I was 18, 220 something pounds. And certainly a lot of that weight could, could have leaned out a little bit and much made sure I did. So anyway, so I, I get my invitation to camp and that's big and you get, you know, the letter with the Habs logo and everything. And it's very, you know, huge for us, of course, or any kid I would imagine that was getting this and, you know, be here, there, here's your plane ticket. So I don't really pay attention to, you know, much other than I'm leaving on September, August 31st or whatever, because we used to, Labor Day weekend was always the weekend that training camps opened. Didn't matter, you know, whatever. It was Labor Day weekend, right? I get to Montreal on the Thursday, and you go in to get your orientation, you know, what's going on, your medicals, what your schedule is, your itinerary, and, and they give you a brown envelope with cash in it for your per diem, which was, as an 18-year-old, this is like, <laughs> awesome. Like 500 bucks in a weekend, but like, I'm wow. I'm loaded, man. This life is good, right? So as they're handing me the envelope and everything, they say to me, well, have a good weekend and we'll see you next year. And I'm 
So all night going through all the sessions, you know, they got the FBI guy in there telling you about this doctor, watch out, you know, doctor, whatever, because put something in your drink and you'd wake up with pictures in your bed, even back then, Polaroids, and they try to blackmail you. So they're just wow. giving you some, you know, things about organized crime and just an orientation of there's a lot of shit that can happen here. So you guys got to pay attention and be a little bit more aware. Now you're dealing with, you know, there could be elements that you've never been a part of before. So it's just that kind of stuff, some hell stuff. You know, what was going on for the weekend, expectations for everybody in the organization, Montreal's way of life and all that. So, you know, then I, I can't get it on my mind, you know, have a good weekend. What's freaking weekend? I'm making the team, right? My mom and yeah. I just looked at my contract saying if I win the Norris, I could make another 75000 If I make the first all-star team, I can get this. I'm joking, right? Because my mom's sure, serious. Sure. She's saying, you know, you can make two hundred seventy. <laughs> my set base salary was sixty grand. Okay. My mom saying you could make two hundred seventy thousand dollars if you win the Norris and if you make the first All Star team and you get fifty points or whatever it was. I'm like, mom, I'm coming home over after the weekend, okay? We're like, let's chill out a little bit. But anyway, so we're all excited, of course, you know. So I get back to my room after all this is going on because testing's the next Friday and Saturday. You're scrimmaging Friday, a couple times on Saturday and Sunday, and one time on Friday after you do this physical that takes like eight hours. Like I'm not kidding. It was like unbelievable. Max push-ups, max chin-ups, max dips, max bench press, max jumping jacks, max this, that, and the other thing. Everything was max, right? Sprint. Guys are blowing muscles left and right. Anyways, I look at my card my return and it's sure enough monday morning i'm out of here and i'm like those wow. bastards aren't even giving me a shot a year ago they just won four in a row stanley cup so i'm thinking they're not making a lot of ch changes especially an 18 year old defenseman coming coming yeah. up right so you know it was a little disappointing but it was like you know they weren't lying anyway so i went back and played two more years of junior and then i was go to camp my 20th year which i was going to be a pro i was pro meaning I'm either going to stick with Montreal, get sent down to the American Hockey League. So um, I did, uh, you know, go through camp. I think I had a pretty good camp anyways. I must have. In the long run, they had sent me down. Uh, they made the trade for Brian Englom, Rod Langway to Washington with uh, Dougie Jarvis and Craig Lachlan went to, uh, excuse me, Washington. I don't know if everybody remembers that in 1982, the summer. And they got Rick Green and Ryan Walter in return to Montreal. So what that did was, because they got rid of two defensemen, that sort of opened up a slot, like mm -hmm. a, an actual slot at the NHL level. So, of course, there was guys in that organization that had been with them for a while, defensemen played in the old college, you know, whatever, and, and I, I jumped ahead of those guys for whatever reason. So I got called up probably three days after I got sent down. Didn't even I don't even believe if I played a game down in, the, in Nova Scotia at that time. And then I got called up. So, I, of course, you're, you know, a rookie. I sat beside Larry Robinson, which was awesome. Larry Robinson. So when you walked out the door to the rink and, you know, to get onto the ice, you had to come through a path. So when you came into the dressing room, if you're looking at the dressing room, Guy Lafleur would be to your left right here. Larry Robinson, you know, would be right here. Bob Gainey, Steve Shutt right there. So I'm sitting to the right, right beside Larry Robinson the whole time. So, you know, what a great guy. I mean, I had the leadership there was unbelievable. I think uh, people forget, you know, being a Leaf fan, I was a hockey fan. So I really knew the, you know, the history of the Montreal Canadiens, all the great stars. And then you're sitting in the dress room, you know, and forever, I, for three months, I wondered why I was there, right? So, 
you know, until they woke me up. You know what I mean? If you you're not, if you don't get to be here, then we can send you where you want to go. And I'm like, no, okay, I'm good. But uh, that, Rick, what do you remember about your first game, your first NHL game? Oh, this is the best because it didn't opening night. I think we played at home back to back, not back to back, but you know, Saturday, Tuesday, or whatever it was. I can't remember what the day was, but I did not play in the opener, uh, which was you know the which is understandable. You know, they were giving guys, you know, that kind of stuff. And as I said, the lineup was still real heavy. Uh, I mean, geez, you still had the Mario Tremblay's, you know, I was there, Pierre Rondeau's, the Rajon Hules, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So those kind of, you know, guys were there, Bob Gainey. So anyway, so it's my first game. Of course, I'm nervous, and I'm sitting beside Larry Robinson, as I said, and he can see I'm nervous. It's like, don't worry, kid, it's me and you. You just go stand in front of the paint in our end. I'll take care of everything else. And I'm like, okay. So first, Jeff, puck goes in our end. I go right to the front of that. I don't even know where the puck went. I, I don't really to think. You know, I'd like to make the story more you know, intriguing, but I'm pretty sure I was blinded by just going to the net. And standing there, and Larry gets the puck, and boom, it's out. And we go up the ice and come back. I don't touch the puck, and I'm so thankful for that. Because all I'm saying to myself is, please don't pass me the puck. Please yeah. don't pass me the puck. Please don't pass me the puck. So the first shift's over. We get back to the bench, and Larry, good job, kid. Way to work. Way to work. And I'm like, shit, this is getting this is pretty easy up here. So yeah. Jeff, same thing. Larry's this time it's in there and a little bit longer, and he's working his butt off getting it out. And he gets it out pretty quickly, and I move up the ice. And again, that shift, I'm still saying to myself, please don't pass me the puck. Please don't pass me the puck, right? <laughs> So then he's looking at me, come on, bud, we got to pick it up and stuff like that. I'm like, figuring, shit, this is easy. Like, I haven't done shit and, you know, no scoring opportunities for them. Third shift, it gets a little worse, and I sort of just adjust a little bit. And after that shift, he looks at me and said, hey, kid, get your ass going. We got to get going. Okay. (laughs) So I'm like, I thought you were going to do everything. So that was my first experience. Like, I thought when you play with guys like Larry Robinson or I'm assuming Bobby Orr or Pot Van or Ray Bork, that their partners didn't do shit, right? They just stood around and watched them and, you know, didn't have to buy a ticket. So (laughs) that was my first experience with the Habs. And, you know, playing in the form, and I believe it was against Buff, uh, Boston, to be honest with you. So Cashman, you know, Dave Hodge, Hodge was still there, Ken Hodge. I mean, you know, those guys, O'Reilly. I mean, guys that I watched. It was very difficult, uh, to be honest with you, the first little while to really engage because, you know, I played an exhibition against against Gordy Howe, you know, and guys wow. like that. And I was still – guys were still hanging around, Gilbert Perot, all those, you know, truly – gifted players and i'm and i watched them growing up had their hockey cards you know and all that kind of stuff so it was you know you had to have a couple of those conversations jacques laperriere was our defenseman coach and uh he worked with me every day like he it was great like he was so good to me worked me like into the ground <laughs> but at the end of the day it was the toughest best thing that ever happened but you know, he'd say, you got to snap out of These guys are players, right? Now it's about putting food on the table, and, and they're not going to treat you like you're a fan. They're going to treat you like you're trying to steal the food off their table. So, you know, that was an eye-opener, being a kid and idolizing most of these guys and then having to go in there and cross-check them in the back of the head. You know what I mean? <laughs> I necessarily didn't have to do that, but I'm pretty sure that's what they wanted me to do. But anyway. Well, what what a mm-hmm. mindset change, Rick, to go from remi- remembering you're not on the couch watching mm-hmm. your heroes. You it may was. have to, it was very as you say, Andrew, at times. You know what them. I mean? And like, how do I hit him? Like, I, my mom might get mad if I hit this guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Rick Natris, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got other hockey greats, including Bernie Nichols, Soraya Tinker, Kent Manderville, Anders Hedberg, Todd Gill, Alan Bester, and Ken Reggett. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Rick, before the 85-86 season, the Habs traded you to the St. Louis Blues for for cash. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Did you ever find out how much cash? Well, a hundred and a half, I believe, right? (laughs) So, pretty good. But that was St. Louis. A lot of people don't remember. Yeah, I thought so was American, too, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's my – I had an unfortunate career, I might say. When I first got to the NHL, the WHA just folded, so I had no (laughs) bargaining power there. And then when I signed my contract, the Canadian dollar was 10 cents higher than the American dollar at the time. But when I – played my first game, the Canadian dollar dropped to like 67 cents. You know what I mean? So, you know, I wasn't getting rich. Let's put it that way, playing in Quebec, right? So It's uh, all about timing. Yeah. Now, Rick, this must have been a huge change. You go from hockey mad Montreal to less hockey mad St. Louis, Missouri. And this was at a time when the Blues ownership was threatening to move the team from St. Louis to Saskatoon. Yeah. So it was, Larry, it's funny, uh, another funny story. In search of art in Montreal, Canada, again, I can't stress enough, I went through some difficulties. I got uh, arrested for marijuana cannabis my last year, junior. I had two joints uh, carried over, unfortunately, and I'm still paying for it to this day. You know, 1.8 mm-hmm. grams, you know, something that I made a mistake in, but it's become a, you know, a little bit of an anchor. But, you know, so Montreal, I want to say this, was very good. And, and I needed to play some hockey. So Sherbrooke, they had moved the team from Halifax to Sherbrooke, uh, the American Hockey League team, the Voyagers, to the uh, Sherbrooke Canadians that year, the year previous. And I was, uh, you know, fortunate enough to have Serge Devard as my GM, and he was really looking out for me. And we both decided it would be best if I went down there because I was still an NHL player, he felt. But I needed to play. So I hadn't played much in the last two years. You know, what was it, 80 games in two years? And that's pretty much typical for Montreal Canadiens, how they treated their rookies and first-year, second-year, third-year guys. You know what I mean? Guy Lafleur, Larry Robbins, all those guys sat on the bench or played in the minors. So there wasn't a lot of complaint on in the Natchez camp. So I went down there, and and, and fortunately for me, I, I you know, I was the number one guy or, you know, the second guy or whatever because Gaston Gingras was down there and a couple other pretty talented guys. But I played penalty kill, power plays, all that, and I was fortunate enough to, you know, with playoffs, you know, score about 65 points that year in the American League in about 60-something games. So, you know, it was really good for my confidence and my mental mental state in regards to knowing that I could still play at a high level and and be that guy because that's what I was in junior. And then I had that gap of a couple years in Montreal, which was – I'm not complaining. It was the best thing that I ever needed. I needed to learn how to play hockey. I needed to learn how to play defense. So I, I there's no arguing with the fact that that was the best for me. But I went to being not even a spare piece. You know, this is a piece that's not ready. We still got to shine this up, sand it down, it's rough edges, and shine it up. So Montreal was great in that aspect, and it was a great experience winning the Calder Cup with Patrick Waugh, Stefan Richier, Brian Scrulin, Mike Lawler. The list goes on, right? So John Cordick. So, you know, that got me to St. Louis, but I'm, my buddy calls me in August, probably a couple, middle of August, and I'm getting back to your first question about St. Louis, and he says to me, Rick, I'm about the hockey news, because that really was the only way to get lineups, you know, to, up to date or whatever that meant, up to date. At the time was to go to the newspaper stand and buy, you know, the hockey news. And, no uh, internet. 
Yeah, no, well, that's what I'm saying. And there was no, you know, rumors and all that other shit where, you know, that wasn't even part of it, which was great because then I'm, my mental health was tough enough. You know what I mean? If I had yeah. what guys are dealing with today, I don't know. You know what I mean? To be honest with you, uh, you know, because everybody's a critic. But, uh, you know, I had enough critics back then when, when there wasn't an internet. So thank God <laughs> for me. So, you know, my buddy says, Rick, I'm looking through the hockey news and you're not on Montreal's roster for training camp. I said, I got my ticket. I'm going there. Well, what he says, yeah, but I was looking at St. Louis's roster, and you're on St. Louis's roster, and I'm like, what? So I get to training camp. This might have been about a week before training camp. I get to training camp right away. Serge comes up to me, says, "Ricky, sorry about that, bud. This worst kept secret in sports, right here." I said, "You know, like they, everybody knew I got traded because they made the deal the previous uh, trade deadline or uh, draft in June. So Mark Hunter had went." St. Louis couldn't protect me because they had too many guys on, you know, on their protection list. Well, Montreal didn't, so I had to, I stayed in Montreal for training camp and exhibition games and all that. And I was on Montreal's roster. I was uh, St. Louis's property, wow. so they could protect me. And then once the protection list came out, they could trade me because I was already protected, and then no teams couldn't grab me. So that's what they're afraid of. If they had to put me through the system, I would have got picked up by somebody else. So I go to St. Louis where Mr. Cron, Ron Cron, the prof, right? This guy could name you every baseball player that ever played the game and how many triple plays. And I mean, this, he was unbelievable. So Ron Cron was his name. And Ron drafted pretty much everybody. Myself, Wickenheiser, Mark Hunter, Rick Wamsley, Greg Pozlowski, a bunch of guys that from Montreal that were drafted that were borderline you know, uh, almost like the Vegas type of guys. This is what I could, uh, I, our St. Louis team that went to the Stanley Cup one game away from the Stanley Cup finals, like a Vegas team. It was the team that, you know, chip on your shoulder. You should have been playing in an, up in the lineup or you weren't playing at all, but you're NHL capable being a third, fourth line guy, third pairing guy or whatever on the back end. So we had a lot of those guys, low salary guys that thought they could play up, uh, uh, up in the lineup. And I think, you know, that carries. So we had a great atmosphere, no money. Uh, Harry Ernest bought the team. Harry Ernest owned a bunch of AAA minor league baseball, made a fortune, millions, I guess. I don't know exactly, in the minor league baseball. So he owned the Edmonton Trappers and, and AAA teams like that. So he bought the team So and the promise to keep it in St. Louis. But I guess he never made a promise that he'd pay any bills or, you know, spend <laughs> any money because during the year we couldn't get – it was hard to get new sticks – Tape, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you're using these, you know, that much tape on the thing left. You're using it as a puck. We were taking it home because there was no sports stores in the mid 80s in St. Louis. All just pop by and get some tape or new laces, right? It was like, Jesus. And no internet again. So we're, here we go. Another bad thing. The last time was a good thing. This is a bad thing. No internet. We couldn't change it. So, you know, the year was, it was comical at times, right? So Dougie Gilmore, he's, uh, Need skates and he's bugging and bugging us. So he he calls Bauer. We're heading to Montreal for a game. He calls Bauer. Can I get a pair of skates? So they show up with a pair of his skates. He pays for them and he wears them the same day. He takes them out of the box. <laughs> we're in Montreal. I got two goals and two assists or something. I'm like, piss me right off again. What he did there, right? You know, listen. It's hard enough for me playing every day, and you get a brand new pair of skates out of the box, not rockered or nothing, and your first start. So he always pissed me off that way, Dougie. Right? Because Dougie and I go back a long way with St. Louis, Calgary, and Toronto. So we play the season. You know, you hard time getting this, that, and the other thing. And you know, we've got Jock uh, Demers. 
and uh, and uh, Barkley Plager, another Hall of Fame defenseman, which loved me again. So I had two Hall of Fame defensemen, and I hope everybody understands, that took me under their wing and taught me two different styles, but webbed them into one, right? Mm -hmm. You had to, and uh, so St. Louis gave me that opportunity. But just to let people know, we get to the Stanley Cup uh Conference final, game seven, Miracle Monday. I don't know if people have ever seen that. We were down by three goals with a couple minutes left. We tied it up, won it in overtime, the fourth of game seven. We flew into Calgary, I think it was May 13th or something like that, uh, with the blizzard that was there with all Miami Vice stuff on with no socks, no jackets, no nothing, but I mean, 13 feet of inches of snow. But we look good. You know, we you look, look good. So, anyways, we lose 2 1, and we've got a this is Harry Arness at his finest, and we've got a charter that's going to take us if we win, fly us right to Montreal, to, you know, to prepare for the Stanley Cup final. We lose, they cancel the charter, and we've got to find our own way home. Oh my goodness! True story. Uh, <laughs> True story. We all fought. We had to pay for our own tickets and fly from Calgary to St. Louis. Took some guys a couple days because flights weren't that available at the time, and we never got reimbursed until the following October. Rick, I think you know this trivia. <laughs> Harry Ornest also owned what football team around Argos, here? Argos, yeah. yeah he yeah. owned our Argos. And as <laughs> you mentioned, you yeah. didn't have great access to actual hockey equipment, but you did no. have really good access to Anheuser-Busch, didn't oh, you? Oh, wow. Yeah. It depends who's telling that story, right? Yeah. Yo, they were great sponsor. Oh, they were the downfall of the team. So listen, we go to Stanley Cup final, have to find our way home, and we have a pizza party. <laughs> Literally, I'm not joking. Okay, we have a pizza party, and thank God Anheuser Busch was, you know, was still had some affiliation with the team. It didn't own it at that time, but it was a huge sponsor. Might have still had a little piece. I'm not sure, but we got a lot of beer, so that certainly, you know, drowned our sorrows in that. But St. Louis again, we were the Vancouver, uh, Las Vegas, uh, you know, Golden Knights there of the National Hockey League at that time. Uh, Harry ended up having the team for about three years. I heard he made about $12, $15 million, never spent a dime, but we had really enjoyed a great bunch of guys, great city, great leadership, Rob Ramage and Bernie Federico, and, you know, Dougie was just a young and up-and-coming guy there. So it was a great opportunity for me to really play a lot and be in a top-four position, but it was a lot of fun. But some great stories that came away from there because, you know, we had to find our own way home after almost going to the Stanley Cup final. So they were a little perturbed, I think, that we lost. I'm not sure. Well, now we get to a really seminal point in your career, Rick. After playing two seasons with the Blues, after the 86-87 season, you were traded to the Calgary Flames. This was done to a – there was a little squabble about what today is a relatively minor amount of money, and it was not great timing for you to make that move to Calgary, was it? No, it was like, so the funny thing is, again, people, we laugh about these contracts, right? And, you know, and please, I am not one of those guys. I believe you, you're, you come into the world at the time you're supposed to come in and you leave when you're supposed to, all that stuff. But, you know, if opportunity exists, it's there and whatever that market is, it is what it is, right? So, you know, I've never, more power to the guys making the money they are today. Take it as you can, because once you're done, you're done. You know what I mean? And they, and that's an adjustment in itself. So, I think, you know, going from St. We bought a house. So we had, our son was born in Montreal, Justin, uh, Old Royal Vic, like I said. And again, thank you to Montreal for everything they did. My wife and I were married there 39 years ago. You know, that's a story in itself. But, uh, you know, it was, it was Montreal that certainly initiated all that kind of stuff and certainly made sure that it went through and made, 
sure that my wife and child, no matter how our relationship went, was going to be taken care of. So they were big on that. So I, I thank them again, and I always continue to thank them. But, you know, going to Calgary was, we bought our first home. We were 24 years old when we moved in, or just, yeah, just turned 24. No, 20, sorry, 25. And uh, we just had our second child. Our, our daughter, Christy, was born in, in St. Louis. And, you know, and, and we just moved into the house three Saturdays today, and I was negotiating a contract. Well, I didn't really... I knew I was up for a contract, but back then I was we weren't involved. Why do I need to be involved for they were giving me five thousand dollar raises? You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? And then I'm thinking, why do I need an agent if I'm only getting five thousand dollar raises? Yeah. So I sort of smartened up way too late in my career to get rid of that five points that they were stealing every year. But uh so you know, it was uh, bought the house, I painted, put doors up. We were excited, you know, young family, ensuite. So I gotta tell this part, this story. So it's my buddy had come down. They just had a baby girl, their first child, and they wanted to visit and see the house and everything. We were going to go to the Cardinals game and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was the summer. It was draft weekend, but I didn't really pay attention to it. I wasn't thinking much of it. We probably had two pretty good years there I had in St. Louis. It was thought I'd get a bump, no problem. I was asking for 135000 They wanted to give me 125000 So it was a $10,000 gap. And I didn't think, you know, ten thousand. What's ten thousand dollars? But uh, you know, at the time, it was pretty big. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apparently it was. So you know, we're I'm sitting here Saturday morning. My buddy shows up Friday. You know, of course, we're having beers. Anheuser Busch, remember Anheuser Busch was our sponsor, so we're having beers. Wake up the next day, and I'm in our ensuite, and we never had an ensuite. I didn't even know what an ensuite was, but now we've got one, right? We're moving on up in the world, right? The Jeffersons. So, anyways, we're uh, you know we're I'm sitting in there reading the comic Saturday morning and the phone rings and my wife, I hear my wife, she's, you know, on the other, Rick, the phone. And I'm like, well, tell him I'm in the bathroom. I'll call him back. And then she yelled a couple said, Rick, the phone. And I'm like, tell him I'm in the bathroom. I'll, whoever it was, I don't know what it is. I'll freaking call him back. And my buddy, all of a sudden, two minutes, a minute later, knock on the door, Rick, it's your boss. Oh boy. And I'm like, oh, yeah. What's today? <laughs> oh, it's draft day. So I give it a quick wipe. I don't even think I pulled my pants out because I knew it was coming, right? I knew it was coming. Eric, Mr. Cron, he, he talked with a very nasal, you know, Eric, uh, we made a train. It's good for you. It's good for, I think it was a fourth and fifth and some cash too. Not More cash they got. Yep. And we're going to go to Calgary. And I'm like, okay, thank you. I go back and sit down on my throne, right, my ensuite, <laughs> and I'm sitting there and reading the comics and the wife comes to the door what's going on i said start packing we're moving back to canada oh boy. we just spent two years trying to get out of taxation and you know everything uh, cost me a fortune filed for my green card because that's back in reagan i think it was reagan yeah it said because they had you know they stopped giving for cubans and different things uh, nationalities stopped getting green cards so there was bigger metropolises had more green cards to offer so we were in line if you had the money. So I threw out a couple of grand for that. That went, you know, another one of my great investments. So, because <laughs> I never got that. So, anyways, I said to the wife right away that knowing what I knew of Calgary and where they were in regards to where I thought, you know, superiority in the National Hockey League in regards to teams. And it was, uh, you know, after realizing, you know, what's the point of getting pissed off about everything, this is an opportunity to win a Stanley Cup. 
and they already agreed to the money like within an hour and blah blah you know this they wanted to fly us in cliff fletcher and get us situated in the house uh you know so al coach and his wife jan she came they came and met us and we searched for a home in calgary knowing full well there was another situation like montreal andrew where i was gonna have to really work because of the talent level in that organization work to be in the lineup because you had your Al McGuinnesses and Brad McCrimmons, and then they brought in Rammer, you know, later on, and you had Dana Merzins, and you had Gary Suters, you know, guys, very talented individuals, right? So, but I felt if I could hang on as long as I could and work as hard as I could there, I'd get an opportunity to win a cup, and two years later, that's what happened, so. And that brings us to a very exciting yeah. day, May 25th, 1989. Oh, birthday. <laughs> wow. Calgary won it on my birthday. Rick Wansley, he turned 30. I turned 27th on May 25th, 89. So this was your game six win, Stanley Cup championship, and you have beaten none other than the Montreal Canadiens. What What do you remember about that, you know, the big championship, but the way the city of Calgary embraced you? It was unbelievable. So, first and foremost, I want to. A lot of people don't know this, and maybe they have because I've told it enough times because I'm getting old. (laughs) But uh, that was the last time two Canadian teams played for the Stanley Cup, okay? That's the last time that first overall, us, the Calgary Flames, met the second overall in the final for the Stanley Cup. And it was the first time the Habs lost the final in the form in 68 years. So there was a lot of things there that a lot of people don't attach to. And at the time, we certainly didn't because it was just about the Cup anyway. So... You know, I didn't think, but, it. you know, as you get older and how can we make the story even better, <laughs> these are all truths, too. So we didn't have to exaggerate or expunge on something. But, uh, you know, so going, playing the Habs, and everybody asked me personally, did it feel good? Did it, at no time in my mind or ever was it about I'm going to stick it to Montreal because they screwed me. You know, I, I've been a firm believer, Andrew. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've had some successes as well. It's easy to say, I guess. But, yeah. uh, you know, I've always tried to be, you know, try to own the successes as much as I can because, you know, criticism was our era. So I take I take to that better than I do, you know, accolades. And then, you know, uh, you know, with what Montreal did for me at a time when, you know, a lot of teams would have turned their back when I got, you know, busted for the two joints and what the NHL did to me in regards to those two joints was uh, criminal, to be honest with you. But uh, at the end of the day, I made a mistake and Montreal saw the error of my ways and also saw the error of how the NHL handled it. So they gave me an opportunity to stick around as but they had they kicked the shit out of me and I had to survive that and that was my penance right so uh you know when we got to that game all I thought about is where I was five six years ago thinking my career and life was over and how many people I disappointed in my life to having so many more people proud of me and you know, you know, certainly my mother, you know, showing her that, you know, this one mistake doesn't define you. Right. So, um, and she was the one that told me that forever. So, you mm-hmm. know, continue to tell me that when things were bleak and Montreal was really kicking the shit out of me. And it was like four months into my suspension and we're talking not one day off and on the ice to five, six hours a day going, you know, heart rate at 200 and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then going into the gym and all these things that, you know, and show up the next day with a smile on my face and mm-hmm. not out and not feel sorry for myself. So, you know, winning, but it was a weird because the Habs, I want to say the fans were unbelievable when we did finally do did win. It was a great series. 
um, and uh, when we won it in Montreal, they stood stood there and, and cheered for us for the longest period of time. And I think one of the factors was Lenny McDonald was retiring. You know, there's a guy, iconic guy, great man, great human being uh, that started his career, meaning, you know, when he was with the Toronto Maple Police, scored his first goal against the Habs and then retired to get, and got a goal in the Stanley Cup final against the Habs. I mean, come on, you know, 500th goal, 1,000 point that year, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I think there was that and, and the fact that, you know, it was two really good hockey teams. But jumping, knowing we were going to win near at the end there and, and, and then trying to define – how do I react to this? Because it's something that you dream about as a kid and, you know, road hockey and, you know, you're this and you're that. And, uh, and I think, you know, it was weird for me because, you know, do you go crazy? Do you act cool? Like you knew you were supposed to, you were going <laughs> to yeah. win it. And it was, I can't, it was, I can't believe it. And to this yeah. day, sometimes I look at the ring and I still think, and we're talking 34 years coming up, uh, you know, in May that we won. And I'm just like, Wow, you know, it's a dream come true, but how many people dream about stuff and it actually comes true? You know what I mean? So it was weird Absolutely. in the sense that I earned it. I uh, played with some great guys, and, and we're still close. I'm, and I haven't seen guys for years, but when we do see each other, it's one of the best. And then certainly went in with guys like Dougie and, you know, that we played in St. Louis together, and Mark Hunter that I played junior with, uh, played Montreal with, played St. Louis with, won a cup together in Calgary. And then Rick Walmsley as well. Rick Walmsley and I didn't play junior, but we taught hockey school, played in the American League together, you know, in Voyagers, Montreal together, St. Louis together, Calgary together, won a cup and got traded together to Toronto. So I was very fortunate. I had a couple guys along the way that became good friends and still are good friends. But uh, winning that cup was uh, everything paid off. You know what I mean? It was it was unbelievable. It still is today. I have a hard time really explaining it because, you know, made my mom proud, made me proud. And I was a part of it. And that's what made me even hard because it was a tough year and a tough transition trying to be in that lineup after a long injury and then getting in there and staying in there with all the talent that we had around us. Well, like you said, not only a great moment for you, a yeah. great moment for another icon from Toronto. I'm glad you mentioned him, Lanny McDonald, yeah. such a huge part of his career. Where do you keep your ring, Rick? Well, I keep it actually up in the cupboard because uh, I can go get it if you want. I can, <laughs> I can, uh, I, uh, I wear it quite a bit. Not certainly not to the corner store, or anything, but certainly when I, uh, I, I wear it to two type of, uh, you know, definitions. One is charity, because you know it's always nice to let the kids see it, uh, let the people that have you know paid to come to these uh, charitable uh, events. Uh, see it because that's what I let them try it on you know that kind of stuff because I let I do that I'm sure a lot of guys do I'm not sure everybody does but I do I feel it's my wife always gets mad at me sometimes because she thinks they don't pay attention to where it is <laughs> but I quit drinking 20 years ago so I don't lose it anymore right yeah, you know what right, I mean? <laughs> right? So, but at the end of the day um, you know we keep it uh, accessible so I could give it to and certainly when I do business meetings I lead with my my left hand Nice. Right? Because that way they won't shut the door on me. Right? So I lead with the ring, with the ring out, you know, with the ring out there, and then there we go. So I'm very proud of that. I'm extremely proud of my Calder Cup. Team Canada was awesome. And if you talk to my mother, and God rest her, she's been gone for 20 years coming here, she would say playing for the Leafs and doing Don Cherry's grapevine were the two best things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. So for your mother, Joyce, we're going to talk yes. about yeah. January 2nd, 1992. You yeah. had New Year's Day off, and then yeah. you became Rick, one of the 
part of one of the biggest trades in Toronto Maple Leafs history. Yeah, still, it's a league history, right? Still, we're the biggest that there were. They came close, to, uh, Cliff. Again, I think Dion Phaneuf, when they did that deal, when they traded him to Ottawa, I don't. That was a nine-player deal, right? So with prospects and everything. So, Cliff Fletcher, now the GM in Toronto, yep. brings you in as part of a ten-player blockbuster, yep. which also sent Doug Gilmore to Toronto. Yep. I don't even have to ask. I know your mom was super excited. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, she wanted to see the Habs, your yeah. former team, yeah. play you with Toronto in Toronto. That's right. But you had a little uh, injury a situation. Foot. Yeah, I had a broken, crushed, whatever you want to call it. I guess it's how you define it. It's how much pain I was in, right? If it's <laughs> yeah. the lesser, you know, you keep it so... We got traded. I, I was injured. I had a I blocked a lot of shots. I think if anybody watched my career knew, understood that. Back when, you know, I guess you weren't that smart when you were blocking shots. Now you've got to block shots, you know, to play defense in the National Hockey League. So, you know, I was the guy that was, you know, the puppet, I guess. But, no, I was one of them. There was many great shot blockers. Certainly a lot come out of Montreal Canadiens because that's where I helped uh, Jacques Leperrier help me define that uh, part of my skill, you know, game. And, uh so when I get traded there, I've got a left foot crushed instep. So I was a right-handed defensive, so I used to box guys out, meaning keep them out of the crease area. My left foot would be free, and a lot of times I would use that foot to knock pucks down and do stuff that the goaltender should have been doing. But not that he wasn't doing his job. I just wasn't letting him do his job. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So I had a crushed instep. So Don Cherry did a great uh, feature on this, too, with the Hockey Night in Canada about how I customized my skates for putting shot blocker things uh, on them, you know, molded some plastic and different things and some compression stuff. And so anyways, uh, my mom's, you know, putting pressure on me because, you know, I probably should have took maybe another week or so. Uh, I had been out for two or three weeks leading up to the trade. Dougie Gilmore told me <laughs> New Year's Eve, I used to be off ice captain. That meant I put parties together and whatnot in Calgary because sometimes <laughs> I had too much time on my hands, right? So, you know what I mean? But watching them win, I don't know how many times in a row while I was waiting to get a shift. So... Um, he told me, Nat, I'm not going in on the first. We had the day off anyways, I believe New Year's Eve. I th we, played, we played New Year's Eve night. We had New Year's Day off. And then, uh, so he called, I'm not going to the rink. You know, they, I, he wanted a, you know, that's a story for him to tell, but they could have signed him for next to nothing compared to what he signed in Ottawa in Toronto. And, wow. uh, they didn't want to, uh, that was, uh, management, Doug Reisbrown, a couple, you know, other people decided against it, I guess. But, you know, so I kind of knew something was coming up. I probably, I knew more, you know, Dougie knew more than everyone, but he was into that kind of stuff, right? Like, I really was oblivious to that stuff. I didn't pay attention to it because probably, you know, don't ask, don't tell. You know, if you got yeah. the balls for the question, do you have the balls for the answer, Andrew? And I maybe, apparently I didn't have the balls for the answer, right? So I didn't <laughs> want to know a lot of shit. Just let it happen and I'll deal with it. Right? Don't don't lead up to it because I won't sleep. I'll drink too much and then, you know, things will be worse. So, you know, I knew we were going to Toronto and I knew it would excite you know, my mom and my wife, and you have, you know, the grandkids closer to home, uh, certainly, and Jet, my wife's parents, because she's a Hamiltonian girl as well. So the trade comes, and, uh, you know, I get to that point where I can't play the first couple games, and then, you know, Montreal's coming into the Maple Leaf Gardens, and I had come in as a hab to play as a hab to Maple Leaf Gardens, but my mom wanted to see me play. So a lot of pressure for me to go in, so I'm talking to uh, the coach then was Tom Watt and saying, listen, I got to get in the lineup here. Well, we want you in, Ricky. Can you go? And I said, well, if we make something for my foot, I'll be fine. So we get it. 
I got to freeze my foot to put it in my skate, which the freezing, if anybody's never done that, oh my God, it's like pulling the skin back and pulling boil, boiling water between the skin and the meat and feeling Yikes. it separate itself. Yeah, very, very enjoyable. So once it's frozen, it's awesome. But just the process of free, the freezing, because it's like a virus setting in from the top of your ankle, from your ankle down into your toes, moving its way and peeling the skin from the meat. Anyway, so I do this, you know, to satisfy my mother. We're out, I get out in the game and I'm block, uh, playing, killing penalties, which my shut down defenseman. And they're on the power play. It's the second period, I believe. And sure enough, Stefan Richet, they're doing the one timer. He's a right handed shot. So he's on my side of the ice. And they're doing, you know, like the Ovechkin, right? The Ovechkin. Yep. Shot. That's what Steph did. He shot the puck over 100 back then with a wooden stick. So my job is to get in front of that. Uh, certainly. So I got in front of it and I got in front of it with my right foot and my right foot, mm. he shattered my three toes on my right foot, my pinky into my middle toe. So now I've got two broken feet, one crushed sort of in step. I don't want to say broken because it was, the tenant was, you know, mangled a little bit and, and bruised and, you know, and then the other one was the toes are broken and they're like, well, we can't do nothing for those. You know what I mean? So you're just going to have to bear with it. So Pretty much I'm wearing a Hugo Boss suit with Bauer flip-flops on <laughs> with dress socks walking through the airport because I can't, my feet don't fit in my skates and my shoes anymore. And to get in my skates, i got to freeze both my feet now for about 20-something games. I did that, 30 games. Froze my feet, would go into the trainer's room after the game because I was hoped that there would be no overtime because the freezing would start coming out you know, if the, around three-hour mark, and games were a little longer then, right? So they were a little longer, and if they went in overtime, depending who you played because of brawls and everything, yeah, like the freezing would be out, and if I took a shot then, it would be like crying on my mom's shoulder. I would be hoping she would be at the game so I could go crawl up on her lap, right? So anyway, I get in the trainer's room after games, and they would put that and them. They'd cut my laces, you know, and Chris Broadhurst, and one would sort of lie on my legs, and I'd bite something and uh, they pull my skates off and I'd roll over and cry for a couple minutes and then uh, have a couple beers and then go meet my my family. So that was the experience of the sacrifice of playing the Habs. And I don't even remember if we won or lost or whatever. All I remember is I broke three more toes on my right foot. My mom just looked at me and said, oh, it was a great game, though. <laughs> and that's the bottom line, Rick. That's You're a good boy. Yeah. You made your mom so happy. Rick, you've been great with your yeah. time. I don't want Thank to pass you. over too nope. quickly, but you did have one more stop in yeah. Philadelphia yep. before you retired. But I would not be doing my job mm. as a host in the Toronto mm. market if yeah. I didn't ask for your comments on two people in particular. Yeah. They are, of course, huge uh, idols here. Yeah. Cliff Fletcher yes. and the killer, Doug Gilmore. Oh, yeah, you well, spent lots of time with both these people. Yeah, and you know, the, the move to... You know, if hindsight, if you could change one thing in your life, that'd probably be one. Uh, just because, you know, due diligence on what the team was like, what ownership was like. And don't get me wrong, the Mr. Snyder was great in Philly, uh, but it wasn't a great situation for me and because of health as well. And and I didn't talk to Cliff. You know, it was in, uh, my agent, Billy Waters, was assistant GM there. Cliff was in China on NHL business. And Cliff, uh, you know, I would, Billy lowballed me. I had six teams offer me four-year deals guaranteed for almost, you know, four-year deals at two million, not plus, four, two million over four years type of thing. So about 500 a year. And Billy, you know, lowballed me. And this is a guy I had for an agent for 15 years. So that was disappointing. So I signed in Philly. Unfortunately, my health took a turn there with 
different injuries. But say, in saying that, Cliff called me a little while. He found out. Uh, I had Cliff had to remind me a couple of years ago that he traded for me twice. You know, once to Calgary and once to Toronto. And I think, you know, it's the story here. And that's the Stanley Cup year with Cliff. And and I'll get to Dougie real quick. Uh, you know, things weren't working. I started the season playing, and then I got hurt, and I was hurt over, I think, 20-something games. And then that year, a lot of people talk about how great years are. We had 118 points. We had 54 wins. I mean, we only lost 18 games. So there wasn't, a, there wasn't a, you know, lulls in how we were playing that much over 80 games, right? So I hadn't played for a while. And we just, it was, I don't remember what time it was. It was we had a team party. And the guys are on me, always bugging me because I'd like to argue with them, right? So, so, you know, four or five of them at a time because they weren't that smart, all forwards. They were on the other side. The defense were on one wall and the forwards were on the other. And it was pretty stupid. You could see how dumb that wall was, right? You know, with the forwards there, they're all holding it, right? I know where I am. I know where I am. So anyways, um, you know, so I get it in with, but, you know, they said, Rick, you got to go in and talk to Cliff and get in the lineup here and everything. And I'm like, yeah, of course, more beers you have, the tougher you are. And I'm going to say this. I'm, they, he better watch out that Cliff. I'll give him a piece of mind. Yeah. So anyways, I make the make the appointment to go see him. And this is the guy Cliff is. And he and he gave me some of the best advice I've ever had in my life. And, and I mentioned it earlier. And I give this to my players and, you know, people that I'm around and, and I talk about. So, I, you know, Cliff, the next morning, of course, I wake up. I'm a little tired, a little, you know, foggy because I've had a couple too many pops. And I got this meeting with the president and GM of our, our team. And I'm like, shit, as nice as Cliff is, you don't want to have those conversations. You know what I mean? Because so, cause I want to tell him that I'm pissed and I deserve this and I deserve that. So mm-hmm. I get there, and Cliff's running a little late. So, of course, I'm in my head the whole time. I'm in my head. I'm in my head. And finally, he comes to me, and he says, hey, Natter, I'm sorry about being late. And first, that was, hey, thank you very much, right? You know what I mean? Uh, for acknowledging that, because you're in a position where you could have just made me wait all day. You know what I mean? And I would have said thank you, you know, anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. And then the first thing he says, you know, can I give you a little bit, bit can I say something before you say something? That, and I'm saying, sure, Cliff. Cause he knows what I'm there for and he sees that I've been working and you know, I've been getting bagged pretty hard and, and I'm still working out in the gym too, you know, in the dress room and all that kind of stuff. Cause I think this is the year, you know, and I, I want to be ready when my opportunity comes, I'm going to be more than ready. I'm not just going to be ready. I'm going to be ready. I know what you're going to say. We know you're working hard, Rick. And, and I'd love to say that you're going to be in the lineup day after tomorrow. Uh, but I can't say that, but it's going to be soon. And we know you've been working hard and you're ready to go. So I just, you know, like to let you, we acknowledge that and let you know that we, it hasn't gone unnoticed. So, which is very nice, right? Because back then it was better, but they still didn't talk to you like they do today. They didn't care about your mental health. And and I'm not saying mm-hmm. that any derogatory against anybody because it wasn't part of the system, wasn't part of the culture, wasn't part of anything. And that's what I said. We can always go back and be pissed off we didn't get treated certain ways but what was the culture like what was the time like and how was it so at that time it wasn't a lot of mental health it was starting to come through and calgary was the driving force in fitness uh and nutrition and mental health you know at that time they were just you know the mental health aspect was being explored how can we improve on guys you know visualization all that kind of stuff so anyways so i'm in class he's telling me you know First of all, you know, we know you're working and all that, and I appreciate that because at least they're paying attention. And I am working. Like, sometimes you question, am I working as hard as I can? And anyways, and then the next thing was that, can I give you a piece of advice? And I went, sure, Cliff. He says, you know, everybody, if you got the balls to ask the question, 
do you have the balls for the answer? And that's the way you should look at things, Rick. Not just Rick, you know, people should look at that when they go into situations. And he looks at me and he's like, so what'd you have to ask me? What do you want? What do you want to know? I'm like, it's all good, Cliff. Everything's good. Thank you very much. Because I guess I didn't have the balls for the, to ask the question. Because, yeah, you know, and I think Cliff would have, you know, and when in saying that, Cliff Fletcher was a man in my and you could say some guys don't see this. And it's funny how that is in this game, how coaches, we loved him because he played me. I, he was a dick because he didn't play me. You know, our GM, same thing. You know what I mean? So you, it varies, right? So Cliff, to me, was an honest man. And he always was honest with me, and good or bad. I think he understood, like, I could take the bad. I just needed honest, right? I don't need bullshit. I've been bullshitted enough, so... You know, I'm still to this day, I don't respond to bullshit very well. You know what I mean? Good or bad. So Cliff was that. So long story short, a week later, I'm in the lineup, never came out of the lineup. Gary Souter, which is, you know, should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, had a great career with Calgary, great career with Chicago, San Jose, played 20-something years, 800-something points. American should have been. He was healthy. He had a broken jaw, came back. I still stayed in the lineup. Ended up playing about 18 minutes in game six of uh the final, the final game of that. So, you know, Cliff was honest and, you know, give an honest day's work and you will get an honest day's answer. And that's what I always felt with Cliff. Long story short, Cliff Fletcher, to me, was one of the most honest guys I ever met in, in a pro sports and uh, certainly in a position of authority. And, uh, but that's to me. And then now Dougie, the little, little <laughs> shit. So anyways, so Dougie and I, we meet each other in St. Louis. Like, you know what I mean? He's 21 at the time. I think I'm 22. I think, well, I got there in 85, so I'm 23, just turned 23 years old. He's 21 or 22. We're about a year and a half off. I just turned 60, and I know he's 59, so about a year and a bit. So, of course, you know, we hit up. I'm kind of a little loose gun, and Dougie's, you know, we've got some, he's got some issues, too, in, in regards to not only being a great player. He was a great teammate, but he liked fooling around, having fun, jokes, prankster, little, that's why I call him a little shit, right? Because he's like your little brother. That yeah. you loved, but you didn't like very much at times, right? You know what I mean? He was always bugging you. He always bugging you, right? So, you know, to be in that environment with Dougie as well, because he was another guy that, you know, was drafted, I believe, seventh round to St. Louis, if I'm not mistaken. It was high uh, or low or whatever the term is. Uh, yeah. You know, seventh round. So he had a little bit of a chip. And you saw that the way he played, right? Because it was all about size. People got to remember when I was coming in, they were just starting to, they were still looking at size, but skill was starting to become more of a factor, but they were still the Broad Street Bullies, you know, type of error. You know what I mean? If you looked at Philadelphia's minor system at that time, I mean, half the team couldn't skate. You know what I mean? Because they were still working their way through that Broad Street, uh, you know, let's last man standing type of uh, era, you know, in the 70s, which was, you know, the hockey of that time. Certainly in the 80s was a lot like that too. But you had skill becoming uh, more, I think, depth of skill uh, through the lineup, not as much as just your one line or two lines and then everybody else was, you know, scrapping. So, you know, Dougie had a chip on his shoulder, as I said, like most of us in St. Louis, because of, you know, what happened, uh, you know, and elsewhere, or certainly with what was going on in St. Louis with not being able to get skates or sticks or tape or, you know, something more than pizza for dinner after you almost go to the Stanley cup. <laughs> so, 
you know, we had, we bonded, you know, and we were all young and we were all either having, starting our families or we're just starting relationships. So we were that group. We had a couple older guys, Bernie Federico, like, you know, Greg Millen that we see on TV that never seems to go away, Greg Milsey. <laughs> but uh, then we've got, and then you had Brian Sutter, our captain. So they were sort of our old guys, you know, the, and, and then you had a bunch of piss and vinegar guys like us and Dougie, which was the new breed coming in, like the new leadership and, and stuff. So, you know, getting to know Killer was, you know, an honor. Robin, his first wife, uh, and my family, and, and Madison, his daughter, from that, uh, from his first marriage, kind of grew up, you know, with my kids, Christy and Justin and Christy. So, you know, she's in between the two of them in regards to age. So <clears throat> we spent a lot of time together. Uh, we spent a lot of time together in Calgary as well. You know, it was that it was that way as a team, right? And then Toronto was a little different because you know, still still spent time together, but uh, you know, it was a different market for Dougie. He he became uh, personal service contracts and all that became more, so his responsibilities were more uh, off the ice compared to you know, ten years earlier, you didn't have any responsibilities really, other than going for lunch with the boys, right? So <laughs> I think Dougie was. Uh, you know, starting to see that because, he, you know, I make fun of always, you know, the trade was the Rick Natchez trade until Dougie, you know, grew into himself, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? So, you know, he sort of overshadowed, overshadowed the greatness I could have had, right? So my mom That's was right. at him. So, no, but I'm just joking. But, uh, you know, he came into Toronto and became the Doug Gilmore, but I knew he was the Doug Gilmore from St. Louis, you know what I mean? Seven yeah. years previous or five years, so... We've been friends and still continue to remain friends to this day. We talk all the time. We do business together. Dougie certainly is, you know, in demand in the in the corporate and charitable uh, sides of things. And I work in that in that uh, field, or and I get Dougie to come as much because he's idolized. And I said I love him like a brother, but he's that little brother that was a pain in your ass, and he still is to this day. But at the end of the day, without him, we don't win a Stanley Cup. And without him, Toronto doesn't do what he does because Dougie, you know, you can say what you want, but that little sucker could play, bud. Very well said, Rick. Absolutely. Now, as we close, I don't want to miss one huge thing in your life. 2017, yeah. you're inducted into your hometown Hamilton yes. Sports Hall of Fame. That mm. must have been a great honor. It was. You know, it's funny. It's Again, it's like the Stanley Cup thing. I grew up in East Hamilton, right, by Gates Park, and played a lot of hockey outdoors and was that kid, you know, good kid, but good kid. So those type of successes, I didn't expect, and I still don't, you know, and, and I think maybe if I ha had a little bit more of an ego, my wife says we would have made a lot more money away from yeah. the game. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, uh, my mother, I think that would have been special for her and it certainly made it special for me. And I'm not saying it wasn't, isn't special for me. Uh, it's not a small city. So, you know, a lot of sports, a lot of people came out of here. I, I'm very proud of that. Uh, I certainly wish my mother would have been around to see it. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I know she's looking down at me, and she's always still she's still saying, be better, be better. You know what I mean? And I try to be that, and uh, and that's certainly the induction was something that recognizes, you know, what, what I did for as a hockey player, and hopefully someday I get recognized for what I was as a person as well. Well, great way to close off, Rick. A tremendous career and a tremendous post-career. And I appreciate all your time, all these great stories. You. And you touched on so many interesting things that you got to see. And what a great testament to your mother, who uh, Joyce, was yeah. your biggest cheerleader. 
Oh, you know what? And I talk about it like, oh boy, mother boy, and goddamn right I was. You know, when I was a six, three and a half, two hundred twenty pounds, mama boy. But at the end of the day, <laughs> you have to have someone believe in you. And I had a, you know, a father that I never met, and a stepfather that didn't. So, if she did anything, she crushed me with love, and she made sure I had opportunities. But she also instilled it's after the opportunity, it's your job to work as hard as you can, right? So. Well, you heard it from Rick Natchez. There's nothing wrong with being a mama's boy. No. When they feed you. You know what I mean? <laughs> we like to eat. So, anyway, well, thank you very much for this. It was fun. And I hope I, uh, you know, filled up your lineup like you've had some good guests before. So, Well, it was my pleasure. And I appreciate your time. And thank you very much. And I wish you continued success going forward. Thank you, sir. To the listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Rick Natris, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. I'm Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. We all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.